Today's episode of I Believe Now What is going to be on the topics of marriage, divorce, and singleness. These three topics are some of the biggest topics in church on whether or not a church stays together, operates successfully, and there's clear, sound, biblical doctrine that talks specifically on these three topics, and that's what we're going to dive into today in I Believe Now What. Hello, everybody. My name's Tim Perko, and you're listening to I Believe Now What? Hey, what's going on, everybody? I hope y'all are having a wonderful week out there. Uh, So today's topic, if you listen to the intro, marriage, divorce, and singleness. Honestly, this this is an episode that's been in the making for a few months now. I've done a huge study in this. It is something that has been just kind of burning in my heart to get out there and, and break down and talk about for many of the reasons that I said in the intro, this is a topic that affects church so much in how we operate, how we conduct services. It breaks apart churches. It can help churches grow all these different areas. So I really wanted to put out an episode on these three topics. Uh, we're going to take the perspective from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you got your Bibles and you're following along, you can pretty much turn there. We're going to go to various topics as we go throughout this. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is honestly just one of the best passages where the Apostle Paul really breaks down marriage. Uh, We're going to see what Jesus said about marriage. We're going to see what God talks about marriage and divorce. And hopefully through this, we can see a clear line on how to apply this to our everyday lives or maybe even to witness to people who are out there and hurting and suffering from all these different issues that arrive out of these three topics. Now, I understand that this topic may convict some people. I also know that it may anger some. This is a very sensitive topic. But we are commanded to preach the whole Bible, not just half-truths. Not just the parts that make us feel good, but the whole Bible. And it is my prayer that we learn from this, we grow from this, and and overall, we just become a better church from this. And I know, I believe now what podcast isn't a church, but when I say church, I'm talking about the universal church, the body of Christ, that we just grow through this. Now, I want to start out by saying that this is a such an important topic in the church more today than honestly ever before. I, I remember hearing my father uh tell me that life back in the 1950s when he was a teenager, you know, these issues that we're going to address here, these issues were happening back then, almost as probably as often as it was today. But the thing was, he said, people were actively trying to hide it. Not saying that that's a good thing, but they were actively trying to hide it because of shame. They knew it was wrong. This was not right. And today you see the total opposite. You see the reverse. People are trying to justify their sins. They're trying to say God is okay with these sins and all the way to the point where they're saying this isn't even a sin. Whether it's divorce, adultery, homosexuality, sexual immorality, abortions, or physical and psychological abuse, none of these things that I just mentioned have a place in any household, period, let alone a Christian household. Now, before we keep going, I just want to say that forgiveness in Christ Jesus is available to anyone who seeks after it. 
So if you're listening to this and you think I'm personally attacking you or that you are so far gone that you can't get away, just know that God is a forgiving God. And if you honestly seek after him and seek forgiveness from him with a pure heart, you will find it. Now, before we keep on going uh, and we get into our passages, I do want to give you a few stats just so you know I'm not really placing anything out of context. So, here we go. So, according to the American Psychological Association, AVG, the American divorce rate is around 50%. Now, some of you might be saying, whoa, Tim, like I thought it was 50% like back in the 90s. Yeah, you're right. There's a reason for that. This number would probably be a lot higher today if it were not for the fact that many young Americans have actually opted out of getting married uh, after witnessing what horrible things a divorce could do to a family. And for my listeners in other countries, I know I got some in Australia and some in Ireland. I apologize. I could not pull up all the numbers for every country. But if you have any insight inside your country, please, by all means, Hit, it, hit us up in Twitter, hit us up on Facebook, I Believe Now What podcast, uh, and give us those stats because I would honestly be curious to know. I really couldn't find much on it. But moving on, so many Americans, as I was saying, are just opting out of divorce, uh, out of marriage because they saw what a horrible thing divorce is. They just rather not do it. Now, since 1990, here's another really crazy fact for you that goes back on to why people just aren't getting married. Since 1990, marriage rates have dropped by 40% and are still growing. 40%. That's insane. So many people are pretty much essentially saying that they would just rather live a life of sexual immorality and no commitment whatsoever than to get married. That's the general American public right there. Now, what are the stats in the church? Well, according to a Barna research group, actively, this is what they called it, actively attending Protestant churchgoers, I'm quoting that, they have around a 30% divorce rate. And this isn't even including the people who say they attend church but aren't active. So in other words, you're Sunday Christians. You're people who only show up to service on Sunday. They don't really volunteer, go to Wednesday service, whatever. And this also isn't factoring the amount of people that lied or maybe just didn't want to share because they were ashamed of what they were doing. But we're seeing a 30% divorce rate among actively attending Protestant churchgoers. That's insane. And honestly, if you include that number of the people who are just everyday churchgoers, That number was actually higher than the American divorce rate because more people in church are typically married. So the church in some ways are actually exceeding um, the rest of the country when it comes to divorce rates. And that's a very sad thing. Mind you, all those stats that I just read in this last chunk came from 2008. 2008, that was a long time ago. I know it seems crazy, but it was a long time ago. So just imagine what those numbers are now. So we talked about marriage. What about Christians living out of wedlock then? Well, one Christian news source claims that 65% of professing single Christians are practicing what's known as cohabitation before marriage. What is cohabitation? Cohabitation is pretty much 
living together with the person you are either one intending to get married to or you're just living together because you don't believe in the institution of marriage anymore. Now, some people, I've been asked the question before, you know, well, what's the point of getting married and getting some piece of paper and all this stuff? It's between me, this other person, and God. And part of me wants to go, well, you know, you're kind of right. It is between you, this other person, and God. But think about this. What is everything in the Bible is done around what? Two or three witnesses. When you are getting married to someone and you are signing that piece of paper, you're doing it legally, you have a ceremony where in front of your family, your friends, close relatives, or even, I'm in the military, so this is very common, the, 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 the normal court case wedding, they require you to have witnesses present. I know for a fact because I actually got married at, uh, at the uh, county courtroom when I got married to my wife. We did the typical shotgun military style wedding, but I still had to provide three witnesses. Why? Because you now have people that supposedly should, this is the way it should work, would hold you accountable when you try to do something crazy or get out of that marriage or something like that. You have people there, and especially if you do it in front of your family and friends who've known you forever, when you want to get a divorce, don't you remember that day you got married? Don't you remember the vows that you said? You said this was until death do you part. They're supposed to be there to keep it accountable. So there's a big difference between you and your spouse getting down upon your knees in front of God, which don't get me wrong, that's a good thing in saying, okay, this is the person I choose to be with. And actually taking it to that next step and doing it in front of witnesses, making it legally binding here on earth. And just like Jesus told the church, whatever you bind here on earth, you know, I'm binding it up in heaven. That's why so many people, when they get married, and that's why one reason I requested when we did the shotgun wedding, we actually had a pastor officiate the wedding instead of a a judge. But once again, that's the importance of having that ceremony, having people there and doing that. And it's just crazy to think that 65% of professing single Christians are practicing this cohabitation. Even if they are going to get married eventually, they don't see anything wrong with living together with that person. I actually came into contact with this not too long ago and someone mentioned to me saying like, well, Tim, you know, what if... They're living together, but they're not sleeping together, you know, because of financial stuff. But they're not sleeping together. They're not doing anything sexual. And I just looked at them straight in the face. I'm like, tell me honestly, are you truly able to resist that temptation? Now, I know that's not an absolute, but come on now. That temptation, you're going to marry this person. You are living with them in the same house, seeing them in clothes that you don't normally see them in, getting into situations, things start going. We were all teenagers once. We know how that goes, especially then. And honestly, it doesn't change too much when you become an adult. You get a little bit more common sense in you, but those desires take over. And guess what? Anyways, getting beyond that, I would continue on with some more stats because I I found a lot. But I think we get the point now that this is a problem, not just in our country, America here, and I'm sure in many other countries outside the world, but in our church as well. So from here on out, let's go ahead and dive into the Word of God and see what God says on these topics of singleness, marriage, and divorce. So once again, many, many good scriptures to pull from. 
but the majority of this passage will be taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 if you're going to be following along. Uh, we're going to go, like I said before, outside to other scriptures uh, and see what Jesus has to say about it, God has to say about it. But we're going to mainly focus in on 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because that's where we see probably the largest part of, of, of attention that has been given to these three topics. Now, as we start, I think it's best to first lay a baseline on what is God's general viewpoint when it comes to marriage. That way we can really keep this all in context. So if you would, if you got your Bible, if you're following along, if not, you know, look it up later. But Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18, this is what God said. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So what does God do now? God makes all these animals to help man out and all these tasks and everything, companionship, whatnot. And I could just, you know, reading this, I could just picture Adam sitting there going, hmm, I'm glad I have all this help and all these animals, you know, keep me company, whatever. But something just still is not right. And then if you scroll down to verse 20, it says this, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And there is the very first case of anesthesia <laughs> created by God. Anyways, continuing on, then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is key, verse 24. For this reason, if you don't take anything out of this, take this, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So if that doesn't really summarize exactly how God feels about marriage, you know, I, I don't know what else to tell you. One man one woman, that's it, two become one, one flesh, a permanent bond here on this earth. Now that we've established that, let's go ahead and read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And like I always do, we'll read through the whole thing, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Uh, particularly 1 through 9 is really what I think the best part about married. So it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men even were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. All right. 
So let's go ahead and break that down. I really feel like it's pretty self-explanatory, but there might be a lot of questions that come out of that. So first off, we see in verse 1, it, he says, It is good or concerning the things about which you wrote. Once again, Apostle Paul, uh, if I didn't say this already, is responding to various questions that the church of Corinth wrote him in a letter. They wrote him a letter saying, Hey, Paul, can you address all these topics? And one of these topics was on marriage. That's why he says, now concerning about the things of which you wrote. <laughs> then the very first thing he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now stop right there. So many people can easily take this out of context. I want to be clear. What Paul is not saying here, he is not saying that you should never get married and never have sexual relations and all this other stuff. Especially he's talking about within the confounds of marriage, of course. But what he is saying is that it's not a bad thing to be single. You don't have to get married if you don't want to. It's not bad to be single. You don't have to touch a woman. And then in verse 2, he goes on to say, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Uh, so while the Christian, we're going to go on right there, while the Christian spirit is truly saved, our flesh is still of this world, and this is something you've heard me say a million times. And that flesh, in that flesh that we have, comes the desire for sexual passions. But God, in his grace and his understanding, gave us this act of marriage so we can act out that desire, those desires, in a non-sinful way. And yes, uh, sex is not a bad thing when it's in the confounds of marriage. In fact, it's God-ordained. I have heard uh, stories about missionaries going to other countries and their preachers were telling them that sex is only for making babies and that's it. You shouldn't take any pleasure in it and you shouldn't do it unless you are trying to procreate and create children. That's completely wrong. That goes against what the Bible teaches, what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 7. Come together. Enjoy each other in a beautiful, sanctified way in the confounds of marriage. Then as we go down to verse 3, we see the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, if you actually look this verse up in the Greek, you're going to see that it holds a very broad meaning. And honestly, I've read through translations. I've read through different translators' notes and commentators and expositors, and they all seem to have a, a, a slightly different view on what the exact meaning of this verse is. But for the most part, what I did see, they all agree that it is safe to say that the meaning of when they talk about the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and the wife must fulfill her duty to her husband, that duty that they're talking about or what is due in some translations, it's talking about one, love, two, supporting each other, three, caring for each other, and four, this is the one that a lot of people try to push away. Yes, sexual relations, having sex within the compounds of marriage, which once again, I'm reiterating, it is perfectly fine inside of marriage to do that. But because this statement was so broad, the Apostle Paul gets a little bit more specific in these next few verses that we're going to go over. Let's go on down to verse 4. It says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, a lot of people will take this one out of context and say, Ha! 
you don't have authority over me. Submit to me. Do whatever I want whenever I want. No, 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 no. That's not what this is saying. You're not treating your marriage partner as a thing that you can do whatever you want with. But rather, it's saying that you are no longer living for yourself. You are one flesh. This is echoing the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, where he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Wow. I mean, if that's not a clear indication on how God feels about divorce, which we're not there yet. We're going to get there here soon. But I mean, man, I tell you what. Then when we go into verse 5. He says, stop depriving one another. He gets even more specific here. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I want to say, first and foremost, yes, the Apostle Paul here is referring to sex. When he says come together, he is talking about having sex with your spouse. Now, once again, do not take this as, oh, that means we could do it whenever I want. The Bible says it, so if I want it, you got to give it to me. No, that's not what it's saying there. This is something that, that's not the intent. What this is saying is that you guys should want to come together often. You shouldn't be uh, depriving each other, as Paul says. You shouldn't be withholding sex as some sort of punishment. In fact, let's just go over a few topics for it. One, this is what Paul's saying. One, don't hold back sex as a punishment or something along those lines. You're just knocking on the door of trouble. Two, sex is not wrong inside of marriage. And like I said before, this is something that you should be enjoying, agreed upon. Number three, if you deprive each other of sexual relations inside your marriage, you are inviting the enemy to tempt you. This is not my words. These are Paul's words. You are inviting the enemy, specifically, he says, Satan, in to tempt you. You might ask, tempt you how? Well, by looking elsewhere outside your marriage to satisfy those lusts of your flesh because you're not getting it inside the marriage. Now, this by no means is saying that you having to go because your wife is not sleeping with you. That means you can go out and sleep with someone else and blame her because she's not sleeping. No, it's not what this is saying. In fact, I'd even say if you think that way, you need to evaluate how you view your spouse as a person rather than just a thing. In fact, this this topic it becomes so important because while I was doing my studies, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, they listed out the various topics for divorce. And obviously, one of the number one reasons for divorce was sexual immorality. Well, then when you go through and you look at all these people who committed the immorality... Uh, the reason why they said that they did the immorality, there was a few various reasons, but one of the top reasons was that the other person stopped sleeping with them. Now, this is no way, shape, or form, because I could picture people taking this way out of context. This is not me saying that, uh, blaming the victim because they were not engaging in sexual activity with their partner excuses them for going out and cheating on them. I'm not saying it's their fault. The person who committed the act, that is their fault. They are the ones who went out and actively cheated. But it doesn't help when you are withholding something that should be given and something that should be enjoyed between both parties in marriage. That's essentially what Apostle Paul is trying to get here. Do not take me out of context, please. 
And lastly, there is a fourth point that Paul is trying to get across, and that is it's okay to stop having sex when you want to fast and pray. But what does he say right after that? Come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, hopefully we beat that horse dead so we get a good understanding on that. Let's move down to verse number 6 and see what the Apostle Paul says here. Here he says, By this I say by way of concession. And when he says, but this I say, uh, what, what is he saying is by concession. Everything I just told you. This is by way of concession, not of command. He wants to make that clear. And in verse 7 he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So, What the Apostle Paul is saying here, once again, is that he does not want people to think he is commanding them. This isn't a command from the Lord. I'm not commanding you that you have to get married and you have to do all these things. I'm saying this by way of concession. Uh, And you're going to see Paul, as we go through this, kind of keep talking about this as we go through these areas. Paul, in my personal view, he talks about gifts here. Paul was given, and this is just my opinion, he was given the gift of celibacy. I truly believe that. And you might be wondering, what is that? And, you know, pretty much the gift of singleness, the gift of not having sexual desires for a partner. I don't believe Paul had that. Uh, there was no, otherwise he wasn't really following his own rules. Now, this gets into stuff that's a little bit outside the Bible. Most people no, I just kicked my table. Uh, most people actually agree that Paul was married at some point in time. Now, we have no biblical evidence of that. I want to be very clear. Uh, but they believe he was married at some point in time in his life because Paul mentioned that he was a Pharisee. And we know that Pharisees were supposed to be married. So you might ask, okay, well, if he was, then what happened to his wife? Well, we don't Honestly, no, the Bible doesn't talk about it. She could have died or walked away from Paul when he became a Christian. The Bible honestly just doesn't say. So kind of take that for what it is. But it goes back to what I was saying. Paul talking about these gifts. I believe Paul was gifted with the gift of celibacy and singleness. Did not have these sexual desires. Not everybody is built like that. And then that's what he essentially goes on to say. We all each have our own gift. I got my own. You got your own. You know, I can I can be single. I can be fine. I don't have to lust after a woman or have sexual desires. You, you might not have that. But anyways, digressing on, let's go down to verse 8. Verse 8, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. And then in verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul, once again, reiterating that it is okay if you don't want to get married. Even if you were a widow, you don't have to get remarried if you don't want to. But then he goes on to say, it's better to get married though, or in this case for a widow, get remarried then try to suppress sexual desires if they are pestering you and plaguing you. Because it's better to get married than it is to have that famous line right there, burn with passion. Now this phrase here, burn with passion in the Greek, if you, if you go look it up, if you got yourself a concordance or anything like that, go look this up in the Greek. It, it's really 
referring to a deep indwelling sinful lust. I mean, that's the best way I guess I can explain it. Uh, You might get a different interpretation out of it, but it's that deep indwelling from your core burning, you know, it's burning within me. I have to get this done. And in this case, referring to sinful lust because it's outside the confines of marriage. So Paul goes ahead and tells him it's better for you to just get married than to have all these lust issues that you're dealing with. So with all that being said, hopefully we have a much better view now of biblical marriage and what God intended all the way back in the garden and then moving all the way up to what the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I know there's so much more that we could have gone over and addressed, but we would be here all day. And I'm already splitting this podcast into three different episodes. I don't know if I I mentioned that in the beginning. But yes, we're going to hit about marriage. We're going to talk about divorce in another episode. Then we're going to talk about singleness in the last episode. And all that leading in to a broader series that I'm going to start doing on church discipline. Because all three of these areas have such huge implications when it comes to church discipline uh, and how churches conduct themselves. But I highly encourage you to study this on your own. Read this for yourself. Don't just learn from this podcast. Open up that Bible. Read it for yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what God is saying and what God's intent is for marriage. And besides that, I hope you all have a wonderful day. And once again, this is Tim with I Believe Now What? Signing out.
or just to put it in very plain and simple terms, if you call yourself a Christian and you seek unbiblical divorce, you might not be a Christian. Now, with all that being said, God, who knows our sinfulness and knows our hardness of heart, gave us a way, even though he hates divorce, he gave us a permissible way out of marriage through divorce. But that still doesn't change his words, and I want to be very clear on that. God hates divorce. Let us go ahead and continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 24, and this is where we're going to see uh, really biblical divorce. 